0: I'm uh, going to do things a little bit differently tonight. There, there, there are a couple issues we want to deal with based on questions we got that sort of all meld in together and even look back at some of the things that we've um, talked about before, uh, but what's going to be different tonight is that I'm going to do maybe 30 or 40 minutes up front, uh, just teaching, and then, and then Jackie's going to join me. And uh, she's going to have some comments, and then we're going to start taking questions. Uh, and if we don't have any, I know we at least have one, but if we don't have any questions, then I'm going to start asking Jackie questions. That's the way we're going to work this. Um, and I'm going to start just by, with some, some things for you to think about as well, just some general things, and then we'll get into it. Um, Jackie and I actually were in Iowa this last weekend doing a marriage retreat at Village Creek Bible Camp. And we actually use the material that we've been using here. And it was, uh, the camp directors have told us it's the best retreat that, that um, we've done in the 15 years we've been doing it, primarily because it's the first time Jackie was there. Uh, again, it, since the first time we did it 15 years ago and just had some great stories and it was a good time. But uh, at any rate, some things to think about. Uh, how many of you, by the way, have read Um, Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. Has anybody read that? So, a number of you. Really, really helpful. Uh, One of the things he says in there is, and I love this, he just says, the quest for a perfect spouse is a hopeless pursuit. Uh, And yet we continue to try to do that, don't we? Uh, We need to remember that uh, that's actually the quote that was kind of the inspiration for the title of what we're doing, So I Married a Sinner. You didn't marry anybody that's perfect, and and you're not perfect either. And the worst part is that you find that out generally after you've been married. You don't generally find that out before, uh, mostly because we're all in the marketing phase during the dating time. I can guarantee you that Jackie thought I was quite the catch while we were dating because I was able to hide all the bad stuff. So she really thought she was marrying a marlin and and after about six months of marriage she realized she had gotten a flounder and so that kind of created some dissonance for her and but that's just true you really don't know anybody i go back and forth on this Uh, i think chapter three in keller's book is the most important chapter in the book but you have to read it in context it doesn't help you to just read chapter three without one and two but I would also argue that chapter 5 is important. Chapter 5 is titled, Learning to Love the Stranger That You Married. Uh, and, and there's some just deeply profound things in there. Um, it, here's another quote. Now, listen very carefully to this, because this goes to uh, one of the biggest reasons for conflict in marriage, which is um, uncommunicated expectations or unrealistic expectations. And the worst are uncommunicated. Uh, uncommunicated unrealistic expectations uh, but this is another quote from it if your spouse's job is to make you happy you will be a miserable person to live with if your spouse's job is to make you happy you will be a miserable person to work with there's a, uh, a wonderful quote by C.S. Lewis it goes like this The problem with the Christian faith is not that it has been tried and found wanting, it's that it has been found challenging and so left untried. And I would say that's true of a Christian marriage. The problem with a true biblical Christian marriage is not that it's been uh, tried and, and found wanting, it's that generally we reject the biblical understanding of marriage for our understanding of marriage, and, and then we, we wonder why we're miserable. And, and one of the biggest problems that we run into, Jackie might talk some tonight about this, is the number of people who will say, all right, I'll try it for a month, but if it doesn't work in a month, then I'm going to go back to the old way. Well, you, you can't do that. It just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. This is something that you have to be transformed by and actually commit yourself to. And, and it's got to be that understanding that you married an image bearer of God, that you married a work in progress, not a finished product, that uh, out of reverence for what Christ has done for you, you need to submit to one another, and that if you love Jesus more than you love your spouse, you're actually going to love, love each other really well. But those are all counterintuitive things. When you're in the heat of it, you look at your spouse and you wonder how it's possible that they could be created in God's image. Well, they were. Uh, you get married and you think, wow, this is an incredible specimen that I have been able to snag for me. And, and you think you're marrying a finished product, and you haven't. You've married a work in progress. You think about it. Scripture says you're, oh, we're all works in progress. You're marrying a work in progress. You know, Philippians 1.6 says, And I'm confident of this, he who began a good work in you will be faithful, completed in the day of Christ Jesus. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, though the outer self is wasting away, in other words, gravity wins. Can I get an amen? It always wins. The inner self is being renewed day by day. And In Romans chapter 8, we are being conformed to the image of God's Son. And we mentioned last week that marriage is the most sanctifying thing uh, that you'll ever go through. So the problem with um, Christian marriage is not that it's been tried and found wanting. It's that people generally just reject it, that we want what we want. The heart wants what the heart wants, and that's where a lot of our troubles start. Um, One of the reasons I do this, I'm just going to tell you, Uh, One of the reasons I do this, that this is a big topic for me, is because I love my marriage. I have a really good marriage. Now, that doesn't mean that it isn't filled with all kinds of challenges. It is. You're taking... Two people and sticking them into a crucible that gets heated up and cooled down that really is meant to only fit one person in it. The two become one flesh. you got two people in a one-person crucible. That's going to be really hard. But I love my marriage, and, and I, I am blessed by my marriage. I have great joy in my marriage, and, and I look around at so many other marriages that don't have that, and I think, you're missing out. And you could have this. The the reason you don't have it is not because your spouse sucks. It's because you haven't figured out that marriage is sacrificial and transformative and is rooted in the gospel and that you're part of the problem. And once you figure that out, then things can start to change. And I just, I, I treasure and value my marriage. I love doing a lot of different things, but there is nothing I love more than just being with Jackie. And that's my default. If I'm, if I'm not, if, if I have downtime or spare time, that's where I want to be, is I want to be with her. And I feel like I, it has nothing to do with how wonderful I am or how wonderful she is. It has everything to do with how wonderful Jesus is. And I want other people to know that, and that's, that's a primary reason why I do that. So tonight, this first question is gonna flow into the second question. I got a lot of people, we had a lot of people ask, what what is the single biggest issue you run into in marriage troubles? And um, there are really five. Number one is, I've already mentioned, um, uh, uncommunicated expectations or unrealistic expectations. Uh, Tom Schrader tells a wonderful story of uh, a couple, it was early in his Uh, early in his ministry and he married this couple and he did premarital with them but he forgot to ask them some crucial questions about expectations and um they got back from the honeymoon and about a week after the honeymoon she called him and and said in tears and said it's over and uh can we come see you (laughs) and so he said yeah come on over to the house and Susan was there and um and so um now, he's telling this story, okay? So he says they knock on the door. He opens the door, and she walks in, and her face is red. Her eyes are all screwed up, and she, it's obvious she's been crying. And she walks in with great purpose, and he walks in right after, and he looks at Tom, and he goes, like that. So, so they sit down, and he says, so what's the problem? And she says, I thought I married a godly man. And he looks right at him and he says, are you a godly man? And he, thought I, he said, I thought I was until I married her. So it started on kind of a bad note. But, um, but he looked at her and he, he said, well, why isn't he a godly man? Explain to me why he's not a godly man. What, what would make him a godly man? And she said, I would expect that he would pray with me three times a day. That was her expectation. It was never communicated but it's also, frankly, is that a realistic expectation? Okay. And Paul looked at her and said, and, "And I'm sorry, Tom looked at her and said, he's not the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul probably didn't pray that often. And that's just not a realistic expectation. So that's a big area that, that we could get into, but w- that's all I'm going to say about that. Is you have to communicate expectations, but you also have to understand that expectations need to be negotiated as well. Because some of them aren't realistic. And some people just aren't even capable of fulfilling those expectations. I've looked at spouses before. One um, more recent, I, 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 just, I looked at the husband one, one day and I just said, she's not capable of doing that and it's unfair for you to expect her to. You, need to. you need to let go of that expectation and give it up. Now, he wasn't thrilled with that counsel, but it was the truth, I think. I think it was the truth you know. Um, We already talked about the eros love thing. That's a big one. That's number two. Number three, which we're going to talk about tonight, is um, couples tend to fight about how they fight. Have you noticed that? Anybody ever in here? you, You start an argument, and within a few minutes, you're no longer arguing about whatever it is that started the argument. Now you're arguing about how you argue, Right? That's a black hole, right? How many times have you settled something do, you know, hashing out that argument? So John Gray, Stanford psychologist, uh, his research shows that, um, he sa- it, it, and this is from memory, so I'm kind of paraphrasing, but it's pretty exact. Um, he says, married couples fight about a variety of things, all things that we're familiar with. We, they fight about parenting, chores, sex, money, communication, all the common things. He says, what's interesting, though, is that generally speaking, within four minutes of starting the argument, the the couples are no longer arguing about the issue. They are now arguing about how they argue, which becomes a problem in this sense. Now, you're not arguing about an issue. You're actually trying to fix what you think is the problem, and it's the other person. That's a problem, because you can't fix the other person. They're a sinner, and they can't fix you that's going to have to, that's transformation that's going to have to happen with with you and God. So that's the third one. We're going to talk more about that tonight. We talked last week at length about the fourth one, no margin, season of life, career, and little kids. And then the fifth one is really just a denial of, of responsibility and a lack of self-awareness on the part of one or both spou- spouses. And really, I, I would say that it's even deeper than that. It's really, it's Um, And Keller would describe it this way too. It's the radical self-centeredness or selfishness on the part of one or both spouses That creates the problems and just the inability to see that you might be the problem Um, One of the biggest challenges I have in post-marital counseling meaning people who are married not premarital counseling when they come in They never communicate this out loud, but I, I know this. I've been doing this 20 years. I know the patterns They'll call and they'll make an appointment to come and see me to t- try to start working out some some issues. And both spouses' unspoken goal in that meeting is to get me on their side so that we can fix the problem. And, and so both of them are vying for my support, trying to get me on their side. And, and about 30 minutes in, this is... By the way, this is no joke. This is why a lot of times it's a one and done deal. I, I, I counsel with some, some couples one time and then that's it because they both walk out of there frustrated that I didn't take their side so that we could fix the problem because I don't do that. Uh, we, we dealt with a couple this last weekend where there was an affair, an affair. And you hear an affair and you immediately think, that person's fault, 0% the other person's fault. I beg to differ. There were contributing factors on the other person's part that helped lead into a context where an affair became possible. And we needed to make sure that the other partner was aware of that and took responsibility for that. There's responsibility that goes around to everybody. It's not not 100% and 0%. So you you talk about these five problems, and what's really interesting about these five problems is that all of them have to do with the underlying, they're merely symptoms of the underlying problem, which is this radical selfishness or self-centeredness on the part of one or both spouses. Keller writes this in chapter 3, the primary and often only obstacle to a marriage approaching its potential is the selfishness and self-centeredness on the part of one or both spouses. The extent to which each spouse in a marriage sees themselves as the selfish impediment to the marriage, that is the extent to which the marriage can be potentially great. So we're all pretty good at pointing out selfishness in other people we're not very good at pointing out the selfishness in ourselves and Keller saying that's what you have to do first and foremost in a marriage to begin to have the potential of having a, a, a great uh, a great marriage so i i I just I want to press into that again um, it, we have a way of, of we have a way of couching that selfishness and self-centeredness in all kinds of things that look really pretty and are dressed up and are even spiritualized. Uh, But the bottom line is is that most of us think that the job of our spouse is to make us happy. And if they're not doing their job, it's their fault, and that's why the marriage is bad. Uh, In Scripture, the purpose of marriage is not to make the couple happy it's to bring the couple together and pursue holiness together that's the purpose of the marriage now that sounds churchy and boring I understand that but that's the purpose of marriage is for two people to come together to be knit together to become one flesh and then pursue the holiness of God together and out of that pursuit comes happiness satisfaction and contentment that's all jacked up as far as we're concerned we want to pursue happiness because that's the goal and it's counterintuitive to think that pursuing holiness is actually what leads us to genuine happiness genuine contentment genuine satisfaction c.s lewis says it this way if you aim for the world you aim for happiness if you aim for the world you're going to miss the world and you're going to miss god But if you aim for God, you get the world thrown in as a bonus. And all he's doing, in my opinion, is paraphrasing what what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added unto you. And that's what we should be seeking in marriage. And I'm not denying the importance of meeting each other's needs. There's a book that was originally written in 1993 that's considered a classic now. Millions have been sold. There's an entire website and ministry built around it called Marriage Builders. It's Willard Harley's book, His Needs, Her Needs. Anybody read that book? One, two, yeah. Really helpful book. He's a psychologist, Christian, but doesn't write it as a Christian book. But it's very helpful. He's saying, look... uh, you got it. You got to work at meeting each other's needs. That's part of what marriage is. But you also have to remember that your spouse can never meet all of your needs. And if you're putting your hope in that, that then you're you're really placing um, an expectation on your spouse that's too high. Ultimately, Jesus is the only one that can meet all of your uh, needs. Um, so. I think one thing that's also helpful to remember is that um, um, Jesus did not die on the cross because we're lovely. He died on the cross to make us lovely, and that's why we have to look at Jesus in the midst of this, in order to be transformative in our in our marriages. So, um, we're going to get into uh, conflict resolution. We're going to we're going to kind of take the long way into it, but we're eventually going to get there. Uh, talk about some strategies and then some behaviors. I'll tell you a little bit about my own story with this and then uh, I'm gonna pass out a handout. I hope we have enough. If, if each couple could just take one and I can always make more, email it to you. And then we'll get uh, Jackie up there. But um, first of all, I, just, I wanna show you a couple of videos that help remind us that, uh, here you go. This is stunning stuff. You need to write this down. Men and women are different. We're neurologically different, biologically different, physiologically different. Again, John Gray, the Stanford psychologist, he says, those neurological, physiological, and biological differences manifest themselves clearly and obviously in different communication and behavior patterns in men and women. Have you noticed that men and women perceive the world differently, behave differently in the same context, and communicate differently in the same context, right? Right? Okay, so I'll start with the more offensive one. Um, Do the Tim Hawkins one first, the great theologian Tim Hawkins.
1: Like one of the conflict resolution tools they teach in marriage is ask questions. When you have a disagreement, don't just start spewing out what you think. Make it worse. Ask questions. Try to relate. Make it better. I used that last week. My wife and I got into a disagreement. It got hot, it got heated. We started a fight. I stopped myself right there. Started asking questions. Honey, why are you being a psycho right now? <laughs> men and women text differently. Like, when men text something, it's just a couple of words, da-da-da, send. That's all I had to say. I have nothing left, I'm tapped out right now. When I get another thought, I will send that out to you. But right now, just a couple of crickets playing racquetball up there. Yeah. <laughs> but women, when women text, what are you doing? Oh, you look like a squirrel holding a nut. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna tell her that too. carriage return on your phone. This is my text to her right here. Hello my darling, how you doing today? Send. And that's when the floodgates open. <laughs> now I'm going to read you her response. Good, I'm just so tired. Went to chiropractor. I'm super tired through shoulders and mid-back, so he loosened that up. He said, it sounds like my brain isn't shutting off for some reason. I asked him if it would be from playing electronic games before bed. He said, probably so. He said, try that, have a sip of wine before bed, If I don't sleep good next week. Come back and try acupuncture. Smiley face, I'm feeling very draggy, but still is Jack and Stacey, so it could be in the air. Have a Jackson played Xbox before bed, so he could have the same issues. So I text back, okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> actually it was just okay, that's all it was I don't want to overdo it get a blister or something
0: okay um, this next one, uh, I'm guessing some of you have seen before, but it's okay it's fun to watch anyway.
2: it's just there's all this pressure, you know and sometimes it feels like it's right up on me and
1: I can just feel it, like literally feel it in my head, and it's relentless. And
2: I don't know if it's gonna stop. I mean, that's the thing that scares me the most, is that I don't know if it's ever gonna stop.
1: Yeah. Well, you do have a nail in your head. It is not about the nail. Are you sure? Because, I mean, I'll bet if we got that out of there- Stop trying to fix it. No, I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just, pointing out that maybe the nail is causing... You always do this. You always try to fix things when what I really need is for you to just listen. See, I don't think that is what you need. I think what you need is to get the nail... See, you're not
2: even listening now. Okay,
1: fine. I will listen. Fine.
2: It's just... Sometimes it's like... There's this achy... I don't know what it is. And I'm not sleeping very well at all. And all my sweaters are snagged. I mean, all of them. (laughs)
1: Sounds really hard. It
2: is. Thank
1: you. Ow! Come on,
0: Ow. if you would just... Don't!
1: Try to keep things my way. So, actually, this
0: is, this is actually a lesson for the guys, not for the women, in my opinion. Um, when Jackie and I were first married, we'd spend time at the end of the day together Talking. And, and one of the things in Harley's book, His Needs, Her Needs, the number two highest emotional need for women is conversation. Do men and women have conversation the same way? No, we do not. And that's a beautiful example of what that is, and, and we experience that. We'd sit down, and Jackie would say, how's your day? And I'd say, oh, it was good, you know, went to work came home it's good you know how was yours and then she would start talking and and I'm a fixer and so she's just talking she's processing sometimes she's venting sometimes she's just thinking out loud but what I am hearing what I am receiving from her is a problem to be fixed and so and so she'd start talking and like within a A minute and a half or two minutes I would interrupt her and I would say hey 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 I I got it here's a three-point plan for you to fix this problem do this do this and then follow up with this now where's the clicker you know and she was frustrated by that because she she wasn't looking for my input she wasn't looking for me to fix it she was looking for me to listen she was looking for me to be there with her she was looking for me to process and allow her to process. And and I finally learned, and it was really helpful. I think you can rebut this later. That's the idea. Um, I finally learned that um, sh- she she's kind of working on fixing it by processing it out loud, or she already has it figured out how she's going to fix it. She's just playing it out to see if it's going to work if in her mind. And 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 I began to learn that there are times when she does want my assistance in trying to fix a particular problem and she has a really subtle communication cue that if i'm looking and listening really hard i I can discern when she actually wants me to help her fix it she'll say what do you think i should do that's the cue (laughs) otherwise i just need to listen and then i learned i read john gray's book on this and i learned that it's actually it's actually, what's happening is actually chemical. So, uh, the primary hormone for a man is what? Testosterone, okay? And, and so, Gray explains in his book, a, a man will go out during the day, and, and he works, and he's engaged, and he's doing all this stuff, and his testosterone levels are being uh, burned, and used, and expelled. And by the time he gets home, his testosterone levels are low, and the body is now sending him signals. You, you need to get into an environment where you can remanufacture the testosterone. And, and, you know, we just get these feelings or whatever, these desires, whatever. It's but, but the brain is sending these signals. Now, what do you think that environment is for a man where his body can really remanufacture, reproduce his testosterone levels? in solitude, doing mindless behavior for about 45 minutes or an hour, in solitude, doing doing mindless behavior. So a woman's primary hormone for attitude, outlook, energy, and all that is oxytocin. So she is out during the day or at home, whatever it is, expending all of her oxytocin. At the end of the day, her body now is saying your oxytocin is low. You need to get into an environment where we can remanufacture some oxytocin. This is really important. Okay. What do you think the environment is for her to be able to remanufacture oxytocin at a high level for 45 minutes or an hour? In conversation with the most important person in her life. So he's trying to get solitude and she's trying to get conversation. You see that? And and that's that's the source of a lot of our problems and a lot of our challenges. So you heard Jackie last week talking about how she began to understand that I just needed a little bit of space when I got home, a little bit of space, a little bit of time. By the way, what's mindless behavior for, for men? Well, it depends on the guy. It could be running or exercising or lifting weights. It could be working on your car or whatever. For me, it's opening the mail and processing the mail, or like I said, playing hearts on my phone. You know? Um, it, it just depends on, on, on who you are. Uh, nevertheless, that little bit of space that she would give me, then I would re-engage and I was fully ready to then do whatever it is that she needed me to do for the rest of the evening. And that, that created a lot of just better relational dynamics for us. That little tweak, that little understanding helped us so much in that regard. So conflict. We've talked a little bit about how we argue about how we argue. Um, I want you to think about the original marriage text in the Bible. It's in Genesis chapter 2. So God creates, and everything was good, 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 and then he creates human beings, male and female, he created them. And he looked, and he said, it was very good. In the Hebrew, it's good, good. It was very good. So nothing but benedictions in the Bible in Genesis 1. We get to Genesis uh, chapter 2, verse 18, He's now put the man in the garden to work it and tend it and to keep it and to be a blessing. And in verse 18, it says that God looks at the man and he's alone, and that is not good. It's the first malediction in the Bible that the man's alone. This goes to how I think we primarily are image bearers of God. We need to be in relationship. God is in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We need to be in relationship as well. Flesh on flesh relationship. So he says, "I'm, I'm, I'm looking. That's not good. I'm going to make him an ezer Konegdo, uh, a, a suitable helper, a a uh, helper fit, a, a a reciprocating partner, a complementary partner for him." And so then he goes through the whole rigmarole of of naming the animals. And, and while he's naming the animals, you get to that verse. Sometimes, you, you, the first time I read it, I was like, wait, I thought he was going to make a suitable helper for this guy. And now he's naming animals. How long did that take? A couple thousand years? But then you get to that verse that says, and, and among everything that Adam had named, uh, he could not find an Ezra connecto. It's the only two places where that, that Hebrew idiom is used. It's, it's in verse, uh, I don't know, 18 and verse 22. Could not find an Ezra Connecto. So God causes the man to fall asleep, takes a rib from him, fashions a woman, brings the woman to the man, and the man sees the woman, and what does he do? He breaks out into impromptu poetry. So guys, the first thing I'd ask you there is, the first time you saw your wife, the very first time, did you break it out into impromptu poetry? Did you sing a song? Because if you didn't, we need to work on that, okay? The least you could do is write her a nice little text, uh, a nice little uh, post-it note tonight when you get home. Put it on the mirror when she's not looking. Okay, that'd be a step in the right direction. So he goes into this little poem about how wonderful the woman is, and I mean he's in, he's just stunned. And then you get to verse 24, and it says, um, "The man will leave his father and mother and be united with with his wife. Literally united." They will be knit together, inextricably. They will be knit together, and the two will become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24. That is quoted by Jesus in Matthew 19. It's quoted by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, when he's talking about marriage. It's one of the most important verses that New Testament, the New Testament carries forward and says we have to understand this about marriage. The two become one. But what's interesting about that? verse is the man will leave his father and mother this is turning their culture upside down it's the it's the only ancient culture that we know of where and this is god's vision for marriage where uh, every other culture what 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 would happen is the man would would go out and look for a woman and by the way often more than one woman but he would look for a woman he would find a woman that he wanted to marry and then he would bring her back to His family, she had to leave her family. You look at that text, you go, why doesn't the woman have to leave her father and mother? It's already assumed that she's going to leave her father and mother. Okay, but he would bring her back and bring her into his family. And so his parents would eventually lose all their DNA daughters, but would gain daughters-in-law. And that would become the shape of the new family, but they were always a part of some other family, okay? God's saying, no, you've got to go out, you've got to start your own family, you've got to start your own unit, you've got to start your own tribe, you've got to start your own traditions, you got to start. That's the biblical, that's one of the visions for a biblical marriage. So here's one of the things I hear the most from married couples who are arguing. I hear this all the time. The wife will say, in my family, the way we resolve conflict was we did this and we did this and we did this, and he won't do that. And then what does he say? Well, in my family, here's how we resolve conflict. We would do this and this and this. Why won't she do that? And now they're fighting about how they fight. Now they're fighting about how they resolve conflict. And I would look at them and and I look at them and I say, Genesis 2.24, you have to come up with your way that you're going to resolve conflict. Just like you have to come up with your way that you're going to do a bunch of other things as well. So that's one little Gosh, this thing is going to kill me. That's one little element uh, about conflict resolution. Um, Where does conflict come from? There's a number of different places that conflict comes from. Uh, We talked about uh, expectations, uh, uncommunicated and and, uh, unreasonable expectations. Here's another place. It's called attribution theory. This is a big place where conflict comes from. How many of you have studied attribution theory, by the way? Anybody know that? OK, yeah, one com major over here, that's awesome. Um, so attribution theory is has been tested for decades uh, in research, never been falsified. We all do this. Attribution theory says this. You and I, as we observe other people behaving and communicating, which, by the way, behaving and communicating are it's the same thing. If you're behaving, you're communicating. People are receiving communication from you. Um, as we observe other people communicating and behaving, we attribute in our minds what we believe is the cause, reason, or motivation for them to behave or communicate the way they do. We attribute it. We do that with people we don't know. If, we're, if we love people watching, we go to the mall and we watch people. Part of why we like to do that is we're making attributions about why they're wearing what they're wearing, why they're walking the way they walk, why they're doing what they're doing, all that. We're making these attributions in our minds. We're making attributions with our spouse all the time. We are determined to say say in our own minds, they're saying this or behaving this way because of this. And, and we hardly ever say it out loud until we argue about how we argue, but we hardly ever say it out loud, but we're thinking it, and here's the, here's the diff- most difficult part. We're sure that our attributions are absolutely 100% bulletproof correct. We're sure that we have the motivation, the cause, and the reason for the way somebody is behaving absolutely figured out. We cannot possibly be wrong. Now, you can see where that would cause some problems. And, and we, we make these attributions based on two major categories, external factors and internal factors. So an external factor attribution is we look at somebody communicating or behaving a particular way, and we attribute the reason for them doing that to something that's external to them. In other words, their circumstance, their situation, or their context that they're in. They're behaving that way or communicating that way because there's outside pressure on them in some way, shape, or form. It has nothing to do with their character. If we make an internal attribution, we are specifically making an attribution about their character or their personality. Again, whether we know them or not. In 2004, I was was on a research team at ASU. Um, with Dan Canary, who ended up writing the article and getting it published in a communication journal. We did a we did a research study on road rage using attribution theory, and we discovered this is not going to be surprising, but it is interesting the implications of this, 97% of road rage uh, incidents are um, due to uh, I'm sorry, internal attributions by drivers. Here's what that means. You're on the 101 driving somewhere and somebody zips in front of you and cuts you off and you have to slam on your brakes. That's very rude, right? Okay, here's what you're not thinking. Oh, I was in that person's blind spot. Oh, they just didn't see me. You're not thinking that. You're not making external factor attributions. Instead, what are you doing? You're calling them a jerk and many other words that since we're in a church I can't repeat to you but is all o- they are all over the research. But worse. We don't even know that person, but we've made determinations about their character because they've cut us off. Okay? Now, think about that in marriage. I'll give you a couple of examples. Some of you have heard these examples before because you've been through premarital with me. Some of you haven't. I want you to hear this. So, a couple of scenarios. Uh, I come home from work. We have dogs. How many, you got dog people in here? Okay, good. You're going to heaven. God bless you. Um, so, <laughs> we have three dogs. We have Moose, he's a 90 pound Weimarimer, and then a couple of uh, Maltese, uh, Lucy and Isabeau. Maltese are those white fluffy dogs that belong on a 10 foot pole so you can clean your ceiling fans, okay? <laughs> so when the garage door goes up, they hear that garage door and they come to the, 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 the door that leads into the, the garage area and they wait there very excitedly. That area is a laundry room. In the Midwest, we would call that a Mudroom, thank you. And so we, we have the laundry room that goes into a half bath, and then that opens up into the kitchen. So I come home, let's say, hypothetical, and Jackie's in the kitchen doing something so she can hear everything that's going on. The dogs run by her to greet me, and, and I love my dogs. And so uh, I open the door, and she hears me, and instead of loving on the dogs and greeting the dogs and petting the dogs and talking to the dogs, I yell at Moose to get the blankety-blank out of the way, and then she hears me push him against the dryer, And then I step on Lucy, and she yelps, and then I come storming through the bathroom, through the kitchen. I don't say anything to Jackie, and I go into the office, and I close the door. That's it. She's going to make an attribution, right? Right? Of course she is. She's a human being. You would, too. If she makes an external attribution, what is she thinking? Bad day, bad meeting, bad something, bad phone call. And, and if she makes an external attribution in that particular context, probably we're going to have a fine evening because then her next thought will be, I'll let him sit in the office for a few minutes, cool off, and everything will be fine. But if she makes an internal attribution, go ahead, let it rip. What's she thinking? <laughs> yes. Exa- thank you for being honest. This is what I get for marrying a temperamental, self-centered jerk like Frank. And after 20 minutes, when I come out of the office, how do you think our night's going to go then? It's not going to go well. And it's going to be her fault because she made the wrong. No, I'm kidding. But, <laughs> but you see how that works. Now, here's another, another scenario, okay? Let me just take another scenario, okay? So I come home. It's, it's not um, her birthday. It's not Valentine's Day. It's not our anniversary. It's not even Groundhog Day or Flag Day or whatever. It's the first Tuesday of the week. And I've stopped, and I've decided I'm going to get her a dozen roses. And I don't stop at Flowerama, where you can get a dozen roses for $19.99. They wrap it in green tissue paper, and it's all wet, and it's a mess. I stop at AJ's. And you got the lady with the green apron, and she's going to make an arrangement for you. And she doesn't put the flowers in a vase. She puts them in a... Vase, yes, thank you very much. Colleen's tracking with me tonight, man. I'm telling you, it's a va- and it's got the little red satin ribbon on it, and and she arranges it beautifully. And there's baby's breath and ivy, and then you got the little ASU plastic pitchfork where I put a, you know, uh, put a card in there. It's just beautiful, and I have to have that cardboard box to get them home so they don't tip over. 89.99, okay? So very different than 19.99. So I bring those. Those flowers in after greeting the dogs and petting them and loving on them and I set those flowers on the on the counter Jackie is going to make an attribution at that point right now in this case if she makes an external attribution what is she thinking uh, what all right what happened what did he do are we moving to Bemidji <laughs> when's the other shoe gonna drop okay But if she makes an internal attribution, what is she thinking? It's what I get for marrying a loving, selfless, thoughtful man like Frank. It's going to be a good night. Oh, my goodness. So you see how that works? So much of our conflict just comes from attribution. And we're very stubborn. The research shows that um, 95% of the time that we are we have it explained to us that our attribution is wrong we still won't change our mind that's how stubborn we are we may say out loud after the explanation you did this because of this and 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 she goes no I, no I didn't I did it because of this you're all wrong about that and clearly I did it because of this you may say out loud oh okay but internally you're thinking yeah of the time, once we've made an attribution, even if we're shown evidence that it's wrong, we won't change our mind. That can be a source of conflict. So what do you do about conflict? Uh, There's a scholar named Joseph DeVito who writes about conflict. If you're an Office fan, you've actually gone through this with Michael Scott. It's funny that he uses this on one of the episodes. Uh, By the way, there's no relation to Danny DeVito. Um, But he talks about um, conflict resolution through Styles and strategies and you're probably familiar with these. I'll go through them really quick. Here you go. Number one avoiding He says that's not good. That's by the way. That's our that that is our most popular our most favorite Conflict resolution style and strategy is avoiding. Okay Uh, He calls that the I lose you lose style of conflict resolution. Everybody loses And the the big reason is because when you, here you go, we're not talking about letting things go. We talked about how you need to let a lot of stuff go. We're talking about how you receive an offense, you don't let it go, you harbor it, but you never bring it up. And what happens is that festers and it only gets worse. If you're not going to let it go, you have to bring it up. You have have to become skilled at letting a lot go, but if you don't let it go, you got to bring it up. So avoiding, not helpful. Then there's Competing. And we're not talking about competing. The word compete comes from a, a, a conflation of two Latin words that means to strive together so both get better. We're not talking about that kind of competition. We're talking about zero-sum game, uh, glass parking lot. I win, you lose, and everybody's going to know you lost. And, and let me just give you a little tip. For years, I had a Ph.D. in this style and strategy of conflict resolution. My PhD wasn't recognized by any major university, but I had one. That was my style. And I would run roughshod over anybody, and, and I ran roughshod over Jackie. And we had a good marriage, except for that. The problem with competing, as I found out later, when you really begin to analyze it, is what you're going for, what you're trying to win in the competition, is very valuable in the moment. But the value of what you win always Decreases over time, usually very quickly, and the cost of what it took for you to win it always increases over time. So, at some point after the conflict, the value of what you've won is now less than the cost, and the cost is usually in terms of reputation, trustworthiness, intimacy, credibility, all those things that are actually really important to us. And if you knew then, if you knew now what you during when you start the conflict what you could know then that it's not going to be worth the cost in 5 months or whatever it is you would change your your strategy okay the third one is accommodating this is the by the way a competing is i win you lose accommodating is what i lose you win accommodating or compliance is usually done by people who are paired with strong competitors because they've discovered that by accommodating, by complying, they can achieve something that feels pretty good in the moment. It's called short-term peace. You do. You would, I'm just going to give in. We, we've, we've settled it. We've figured it out. We've got peace now in the marriage. The problem with accommodating and short-term peace is that that almost always turns into long-term bitterness and resentment. That is not healthy for a marriage, it's not healthy for any relationship and no relationship can sustain uh, a situation where one person always wins and one person always accommodates, okay? And that bitterness and resentment will eventually come out and it always comes out in unhealthy ways. Sometimes it sort of leaks out like a slow toxic leak. You ever been around somebody maybe at work where they're just sort of toxic and bitter, mildly toxic and bitter? You know, they're not ranting and raving and rampaging. They're not like that. But you spend a half an hour with them and you feel like a dead car battery after it, after it because you've, they've sucked the very life out of you, okay? Or they're fine, they're fine, they're fine, they're fine. And then one day, they just explode. None of that's healthy. So then he says, all right, there's two good ones collaborating that's the I win, you win style of conflict resolution. I've actually emailed him and said, okay, if it's that easy to resolve the conflict, was there ever a conflict in the first place? Maybe this was just a misunderstanding. He didn't care. He didn't email me back. Um, compromising is the other one. Compromising is uh, you, I, I win some and lose some. You win some and lose some. He calls this negotiating or horse trading, but that's a strategy as well. And that sounds more like what we're trying to get at. The fact that, You're going to have to put some skin in the game in order to resolve conflict. Everybody's got to put a little skin in the game. Everybody's going to have to give up something here in order to get here and get something uh, bigger. Now, remember, uh, John Gottman says that 69% of marital conflict is unresolvable, and about half of that is because of unhealthy spouses who bring up everything It's the old saying, if everything's important, then nothing's important. If Jackie Jackie brought up every single time I offended her or made her mad, at some point I'm going to look at her and go, I don't care anymore because everything's important to you, so nothing's important. I can't win. But the fact that she lets so much go, when she does finally bring something up, I'm ready to listen because I know that she's already processed through a lot of stuff that she let go. So now I'm ready to listen, but that still leaves about thirty percent of conflict that is unresolvable, legitimately unresolvable. Where you, you got to sometimes learn in marriage to shrug your shoulders and go, "Okay, that's you know, all right." Now, if it's a major thing, like you know, your spouse comes home and says, "I took a promotion and we're moving to Pittsburgh," and you never discussed it, that's a problem. But there are going to be things that you're legitimately going to discuss and negotiate and work on, and. The solution isn't going to be the greatest, but how do you get to that? How do you get to those times when the solution can be good? Devito would say you got to collaborate or compromise. Now here's where the transformation for me took place. In 2001, I was in my first semester uh, working on my Master of Arts in Communication Theory. I, it was my second week. I'm just, I'm still just trying to learn the vernacular of the discipline of communication. Even though I minored in it in, in college, I'm still trying to learn. The discussions in the classes were a little bit over my head. I I was writing down words I'd never heard before and looking them up. And I came across a guy named Stephen Littlejohn, who's a communication scholar. He's actually um, married to uh, Judy Burgun, who's a a communication professor down at U of A. Very famous communication uh, professor down there. and and he said, "Here's what he's saying. Let's not talk about styles and strategies. Let's talk about communication. Uh, talk, talk about conflict resolution behaviors." And so he did this thing where he did what uh, John Gottman did for years and years and years. He observed people in conflict for years, and started picking out certain behaviors that people exhibited during conflict resolution. And he came up with, he actually, he coded these behaviors, it's called the Conflict Management Coding Scheme. There's 26 or 27 of these behaviors, and then he breaks them down into three different um, categories of conflict resolution behaviors. And those three categories are avoiding behaviors, competing behaviors, and cooperating behaviors. So I have that conflict resolution, could I get a couple of people to help pass these out, maybe? Thank you. So try and take one for a couple. Oh, hi, Cody. <laughs> so as you're getting this, <clears throat> I, I'm studying at Hayden Library in, in Tempe on a Tuesday night. I come across this thing, and I stop looking at everything else. I start looking at this. I spent three hours on this thing. And that's all I'm going to say until you all have one in front of you. Sorry, I'm going way longer than I hoped to go. I'm almost done. Then we'll get Jackie up here, because that's really why most of you are here. I understand that. Some of you have a copy of this already, right? (laughs) Okay, so I start going through this, and that first category, there are ten avoidance behaviors. And uh, let me have one of those so I make sure I don't make any mistakes on this. Thanks. So I'm looking at the denial and equivocation, okay, I'm not necessarily denying I'm part of the problem, but there you go, number three, I'm pretty good at evasive remarks. So that's an avoidance behavior, I'm pretty good at that. I fancy myself as a a really good topic shifter. Now, I I might be able to fool some of you in here. I can't fool Jackie anymore. Probably the most common thing that she says in the midst of conflict with me is quit trying to change the subject. She knows when I'm trying to shift topics, so I'd try that. Um, And then non-committal remarks. I was pretty good at procedural remarks. You can look at all these later. Obviously, um, I, I think I'm good at number 10, joking. I can be in the midst of a of a meeting where it gets really tense, whether it's a meeting with one other person or maybe a small group meeting. It get really tense, and it's like, and I'll throw in a joke, and everybody laughs, and then I'm kind of kind of let a little of the pressure out of the room, and then I'm hoping that they'll just forget we were talking about something and we'll move on. That's what I'm hoping, you know. That's when I'm in my avoidance mode. That's not my primary mode, though. Turn it over and go to the. Third category, the seven competitive behaviors. Little John calls these disintegrative behaviors. We think of integrity as honest, hardworking, ethical. In science, integrity means wholeness or or unfragmented. These competitive behaviors uh, uh, blow things up, fragment things, blow things apart. I started reading these, personal criticism. Stating or implying a negative evaluation of the partner. In other words, not staying on the issue, but specifically criticizing the person. So ad hominem attacks. I'm ah, pretty good at that. Um, rejection. You're not just rejecting your partner's opinion. You're rejecting it in a way that they lose dignity and personhood. You're not just rejecting their what they're saying. You're rejecting them. OK. I'm pretty good at that, too. I was trying to be honest with myself. Hostile imperatives, yeah. I suppose, not my favorite tool in the bag, but hostile questioning, that might be my favorite one. You know what hostile questioning is. It's, it's a statement of fact in the form of a question usually accompanied with a, a, an aggressive forward posture and an outstretched finger in the person's face. And if the person begins to answer the question... It makes you even more angry because it's really not a question. You're just stating something in the form of a question. Very good at that. Hostile joking or sarcasm, that's another one really good at. I mean, biting, uh, um, uh, contempt, just contempt, joking and sarcasm. Presumptive attribution, very good at that, too. We talked about attribution. In other words going into the conflict. I haven't even heard what Jackie has said, and I've already decided what her position is, why she has that position, and why she's dead wrong about that position. That's presumptive attribution. Very excellent at that. So good at that. You could take lessons from me on that. And denial of responsibility. Um, I don't deny, I do. I don't, but I don't, I do. Here's how I deny responsibility. Well, of course I'm part of the problem. Of course I am part of the problem. See, I'm not denying responsibility. But I'm not the biggest part of the problem. That's denying responsibility. I recognize my part in this, but it's really over there, okay? Then I got to the cooperative behaviors. And I literally had to go look these up. I had never heard of any of these. I was familiar with all the... This should have been a bad sign. I was familiar with all the competitive ones. I wasn't familiar with the cooperative. Here you go. Description. Sit down and describe the issue that you're going to fight about in a non-evaluative, non-blaming way. Okay. here's what the problem is. Let's talk about it factually. Here's what the problem is, Okay. We're going to agree that this is what the problem is. I know, not hard to do. You're angry. But maybe you need a little cooling off period first. Then qualification. You're not going to bring in anything else into the argument. There may be other issues, but you don't get to bring them in while we talk about this one particular issue. You're qualifying it. You're saying, we're only gonna talk about this. There's a thing called gunny-sacking. Some of you are gunny-sackers. Gunny-sacking is a metaphor. It's, it's, you carry around this invisible gunny-sack, an invisible bag of offenses like for years. And you, you get offended, and, and you take it, and you stick it in your gunny sack. And then you're in the middle of, a, of an argument. You're going back and forth, and you begin to sense that you're losing the argument. You're, you're kind of back on your heels. They're, they're really, they've got great points. They're really starting to press in, and they're winning. And so what you do is you go, what about this? And it pushes them back on their. What, a, what about it? That happened during Ronald Reagan's administration. Why are you bringing that up now? I don't understand. Okay? Because I don't have anything else right now. Okay? You have to say, we're just going to talk about this. We have other issues. We'll talk about them later, but we're going to talk about this. Then here you go. Three, four, and five, probably the most important part. Well, six is two, but three, disclosure. Here you go, now you get to talk about how it makes you feel. Everybody has a perception and your perception is reality. And we have to recognize that you may not perceive something the same way your spouse perceives it, but you can't deny that it's real the way they perceive it. You might be able to argue as to why they might change their perception, but they perceive things a particular way. So disclosure, I get to now tell Jackie, this is how this issue makes me feel. In my context, the way I'm wired, this is how it makes me feel. Then Jackie gets to say, okay, well, here's how it makes me feel. And we both have to look at each other and go, those feelings are real. We need to deal with them. We can't discount, we can't say, well, you're an idiot. That's why you feel that way. That doesn't work, okay? But that's what we tend to do. I feel this, it's called false consensus effect. False consensus effect, uh, we all do this. It's the fact that we all Um, overestimate the degree to which other people agree with our position, value, beliefs, likes, dislikes, attitudes, and, and behaviors. We think everybody else sees the world the way we do, and if they don't, they're idiots. Everybody should see the world the way we do. So disclosure is opening up a whole new world to us. I feel this way about it. You feel differently. Then, criticism, number five. Then, I get to ask Jackie... And this is actually really helpful. It's hard, but it's really helpful. What am I doing in the midst of this that could make you feel better about it? You need to give me criticism about how I could do better in this situation so that you would feel better about it. You need to, be, you need to give me critical input about the way I'm handling it. From your perspective, how could I handle this better? And then I get to ask her or tell her the same thing as well. And then number six, empathy and support. You can't do any of this without empathy. You have to look at the issue from the other person's perspective and support the, f- you have to say things like, you know what, I can, I can see why this would make you feel that way. That is legitimate. Do you know how far that goes in the midst of an argument? Just to go, yeah, you're right, I can see, I can see how you'd feel that way. I don't feel that way, but I can certainly see how you would. That makes sense to me. So empathy and support. And then, of course, accepting uh, your responsibility. In, in, in the Oh, concessions, giving concessions, number seven, which is certainly a part of it, compromise, and then um, uh, accepting responsibility. So spent three hours on this making notes, got a clean copy of it. It was a Tuesday night. It was 10 o'clock. The girls were 8 and 4 at the time, so they were already in bed. I got home. Jackie was still up because she's a hyper night person. and. I was glad she was still up and I said oh man good can we sit down at the dining room table I want to show you something so I took this and I and I worked through this entire thing with her I said I discovered this thing I need to tell you about it I worked through this entire thing with her pointing out all the ways that she was screwing up our relationship. no I'm kidding um, <laughs> and at the end of it I said I told her I said it was like a come to Jesus moment for me God used this in an incredible way and I don't say this to puff myself up. I say this to say, listen, I, I was a mess in this. I said, I, I've been this competitive guy, and I don't want to be that guy anymore. I want to be the cooperative guy. Um, let's try to figure out how to make that happen. And she, she started crying. Now, we're, I don't know, 13 years into our marriage at that point. She'd been, she'd been praying. That God would change her heart about this, but that God would also maybe open my eyes. And it took Stephen Littlejohn's conflict management coding scheme at Hayden Library in Tempe, Arizona, to be able to do that. She starts crying, and so we, uh, I, I, word processed, typed up uh, the cooperative behaviors, and we use that as our script. You know, the kids were eight and four at the time, so our refrigerator was covered with all these coloring book things, and. Um, you know, for daddy and all that stuff. And we put a magnet on there with the script. And we said, next time we do this, we're going to work the script. And man, it was hard and awkward and clunky the first time we did it. Okay. Description, describe what we think the issue is. Okay. (laughs) It was hard. But I will tell you that the first time we did it, the conflict lasted less time and we were both Much more satisfied, and here you go, much less fatigued. We were more energized at the end of it than we'd ever been before. And we were hooked. We don't have it on our refrigerator anymore. And by the way, we're not perfect at using it, emotions can still rule, and that's a problem. But when we use this, it works, man. I'm telling you, it works. And it transformed our marriage from a really good marriage, except for this one area. Into what I, this was like the last step to making it potentially a really great marriage. A really great marriage. So that's what I got. So come on up, Jackie, and let's hear from you. You've been taking notes, which is awesome. So do you want to use this or are you going to be okay with that? Okay. Sorry, it's gonna take me- Cody, could you get Mabel to describe the problem maybe and then.
2: <laughs> there, does it matter what ear I put this
0: on no it works on both ears okay.
2: can you hear me Yes. alright um, you might have to ask me questions but I just took some notes, yeah,
0: just um, run through your notes.
2: <sighs> let's see uh Frank mentioned something called a script. If you didn't go into too deep of a detail about that, but scripts is when you um have a um a way you think something's gonna work out. You you something is happening and you're you're already deciding, well then this is gonna happen, this is gonna happen, this is gonna happen, this is gonna happen, because that's the way you want it to happen. So it's your script in your mind that's happening. And so um and so you you mentioned scripts a little bit tonight. Well, the, this
0: this this is a <laughs> script that script, we cover, yeah. but yeah. we all go into the argument with a script in our mind of how it's going to work out, and conflict gets worse when our scripts are violated. Right.
2: So I wanted so, you to bring that up a yeah, little bit, okay. but yeah, um, and but that's then, more me talking. And so. I know I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and then just going through notes. Sorry, it's boring. Um. In conflict resolution and and really, just in conversation ever with your spouse, this is one of the ways that God speaks to me the most, and I don't mean to, I'm not saying I'm putting Frank on some platform and you know he's God in my life um, he's not sorry <laughs> but um but he's God certainly uses him the most to speak to me, and he doesn't know it probably most of the time. But I I, I think that we should all look at our relationships in that way because God gives you this person that's the most important to you, should be the most other, most important other human on the planet to you. And um, why wouldn't he use that person to speak to you? And so I think if, um, especially in conflict, I try to stop and remember that and think, okay, is God trying to say something to me? Sometimes he's just being a jerk. Okay, but <laughs> most, of, most of the time I I can sit back and think, okay, what is God trying to teach me here? Or, or what am I supposed to be hearing him say to me right now? Because God uses him all the time. Just like my close friends, you know, when we sit together and we talk, they'll say something to me and I'll think, oh, wow. That was directly from God to me, from you, and you don't even know that just happened. So that was one of the things I was thinking about. Um, you also talked about... Um, um, like when you were talking about testosterone and and all that, and and I was just thinking too, in many ways, our roles are reversed in our marriage. In a lot of different areas in our marriage, i 'm not the traditional the woman, woman and he 's the traditional man. Um, our roles are reversed in a lot of things, and that took us a little bit of time to figure out um, because when you're when you're married it 's like well you 're the husband i 'm the wife, and that's true, but those come with um, you know thoughts about what that 's supposed to look like right and and we don't line up with all of those things and and you probably don't either and so I would encourage you to figure out. What those where you might be reversed in roles so that you're not trying to play a role. You're being real with each other and, and thinking that through. Let um, me tell you a
0: little story about that. Um, Jackie's an unbelievable negotiator. So she negotiates all the major purchases in our life, including cars. I mean, I, it, it, she walks in, and they're like, oh, man, I'll take her because I can take her, and then she <laughs> walks out just having stomped on them. <laughs> And they like her after, too. They don't even realize it. But um, remember when we were at Royal Palms Baptist Church, and you went out and you bought the new Xterra? Remember that? And you drove in new Xterra. And and um, that other another one, woman named Jackie, yeah. she said, oh, you, you bought her a new car. And I said, "I no, I didn't. What do you mean? I said, Jackie went and bought it. She, she went to the dealership and negotiated. She was stunned. She had no place to put that in her brain. That a woman went and actually negotiated mm-hmm. for this car and got the right price. It, w- she, it was just outside of her; cause she couldn't handle it. I, I, I thought that was really funny. Yeah. Nobody else seems to. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> but yeah, but look at your look at your roles in, in in your marriage because they don't have to be what some script says, right? We can we can get along, sharing different roles than maybe what is normal. Or you might want to call it. Um, and then one of the things that helped me a lot too, um, by my first comment about saying, you know, that I really know, I I hope to feel it and see it when God speaks to me through Frank, and it's not just an argument, it's a, it's all in, our, in all of our life. But um, is to start to, is to try to get really honest with yourself, because we all, I mean, your spouse will probably tell you, but you may not believe it, but they'll probably tell you like what's wrong with you, right? What what your problems are. Because we all have faults. We all have things that we tend to, we lean to, we, um, uh, you know, that are our downfalls in our lives. We each have these lists of things. And so if you can get honest with yourself about the ones that you know are yours, and the, so then when you, when you have a conflict or something, um, I, I try to stop and I say to myself, okay, am I gonna bring this up because I'm mad? Am I gonna bring this up because I'm hurt? Am I gonna bring this up because it's really my problem and I want to put it over there for a little while? (laughs) So getting honest with kind of what your stuff is. You know what your stuff is and if you're not sure what your stuff is, ask your spouse when you're not in any kind of a conflict. (laughs) So they give it (laughs) to you nicely but you have stuff. You have stuff that's a problem in your marriage And, and then he's got stuff and so then when we put our bad stuff together, we're a real problem. So getting honest with yourself and figuring out what your stuff is is, is always a good idea. And then also I think a lot of um, arguments that, you know, start small and then you end up, um, you know, just slugging it out for hours, right, um, come because we're really, honestly, we're just fearful, right? It starts as maybe something really happened that was annoying or hurtful or whatever, um, but when we don't stop and, and look at it and pray about it and, and, and try to calm down about it first, um, it almost ends up because we're just fearful of something. And sometimes it's fearful, uh, especially in, when in the beginning of marriage, is because they've shown you something that scares you, right? Some part of their personality has come out you've not seen before or the way they handled something or the way I handled something actually made me fearful because now I'm stuck with you. (laughs) You might do that again. (laughs) So um, just to kind of keep that in the forefront that you've made a decision. And so we'll, and we used to, we don't really have to do this much anymore, but we enter into a lot of conversations that are hard by saying I'm going to talk to you about this and we're going to figure it out, but you don't have to worry. I am accepting you. I have accepted you. I'm not going anywhere, but we have to talk about this so that he knows or I know immediately before the argument, before the, even before there's a conversation, that I'm not going anywhere. No matter what you do right now, I accept you. No matter what you say right now, I'm not going to pack a bag. I'm not going to walk out the door. We may not be braiding each other's hair for a while, but, <laughs> but nobody's going anywhere. And, and that's why we get into deeper and deeper and harder and harder situations with arguments is because I'm scared now. I'm just scared. And, by, and part of what's coming out of me is fear. That's all I got. Good. <laughs>
0: all right. Uh, questions? Any questions? How important is it for couples to do daily devotions? Ah, that's a, that's a really good question.
2: Um, I think it's really important um, for you to do it personally. I mean, we we don't a lot of times have time to do a daily devotional. We don't have time to do a daily devotional together. 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 But remember who's first in this relationship. My relationship with Christ, Frank's relationship with Christ. So if we keep that on track, if I keep that on track, I'm a much better human to him, my family, everybody. And then we spend time, we don't have like a book that we open together, or whatever, but we spend time talking and we spend time, you know, um, looking at scripture and saying, what do you think about this? You know, it's maybe not like a super structured, we've got a book we're reading together, but which is also wonderful. But I think it's even more important that you each are having your time with Christ every day.
0: So we each have time with God to, uh, uh each day, one, one of the challenges for us is, I, I think I've mentioned this before, she's a hyper night person and I'm a hyper morning person. So the challenge of us doing devotions together right, right out of the gate, it's probably not a realistic thing that we could do. I'm not saying that other couples shouldn't do right. it, but we both have time with God ourselves. And then as she said, we talk a lot about scripture together in conversations. It's just not structured. We talk a lot about what God is saying here and what God is saying there and what does that mean.
2: And it comes right out of our personal devotions. Yeah. It comes right out of that. Yeah. And so then we're back here our talking. Our devotions
0: just don't look like we're going through a Max Lucado book together. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do that. Or I'm we haven't. Saying, We've <laughs> done
2: that too. Yeah.
0: yeah. But it just it depends. And you've got to remember, um, this is a bigger question about spiritual disciplines. And sometimes we can get a little bit freaked out about spiritual disciplines. Um, spiritual. I'm all about spiritual disciplines, and spiritual disciplines are really good. Reading, uh, scripture, prayer, devotions, uh, solitude, silence, um, whatever the fasting, whatever those spiritual dis- disciplines might be, I'm all about it, but I am also the first person, and, and I read this in um, Larry Osborne's book, A Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God, fantastic, fantastic book. He wrote four chapters in his book about this. My passion does not have to be your passion. So one of the problems with spiritual disciplines is the discipline of fasting really works for somebody to get connected to God, and so suddenly they become a fasting evangelist and everybody needs to fast, and that's the only way you can get closer to God. That may not be somebody else's best way to do spiritual disciplines. They might be better reading scripture or solitude, or one of those things. So we have to be very careful with these things too, and not say this works for me, therefore it should work for everybody. That's a little bit of that false consensus effect coming in again. However, we should all be doing spiritual disciplines, but we need to be finding what they are. What what, what are the good ones for us?
2: Yeah, so. I would say we pray together more than we do a devotional. Yeah, together. Yeah. Any others? <clears throat> it's a big one.
0: The small fund. Uh, <laughs> so many times we find ourselves feeling like we are owed something by our significant other. Can you speak to dealing with the frustrations that come with feeling like you are being uh,
2: bartered?
0: Bartered with by your partner. How do we discuss and confront what we feel we are owed, or confronting what our partner thinks we owe? It's actually a really good question um, and has a number of layers to it. Yeah. I, I have some thoughts on it. Go, you want to take you, a go shot ahead. first? Um, how many of you have heard of uh, social exchange theory? A couple of you, yeah, okay. So uh, social exchange theory is a really important theory that guides research in both psychology and communication. It's the theory, and again, it's never been falsified. It's the theory that says that the reason we get into and out of relationships is based on the profits that we perceive we're getting out of the relationship. In other words, um, we get into a relationship, and we're going to put something in, but we're going to get more out of it than we put in. Whatever that is, emotional energy, what, whatever it is, we're going to get more out than we're going to put in. Um, and marriage is actually his needs, her needs, Willard Harley's book. He never uses the term social exchange theory, but that's what it, that, that whole book is based on social exchange theory. Um, and, and it's the idea that, that relationships are transactional. Okay? Well... If your relationships are only transactional that means that they also become uh, something that you're using which means you're using the person and so if you're in a marriage that's transactional it's not sustainable it just isn't is the only transaction that helps that happens in the gospel is the transaction on the cross where jesus exchanges his holiness for our sin that's the only transaction the rest of the time Our relationship in the gospel is not transactional. It's sacrificial and and humbly submitting to one another. That's what it is. Read Ephesians 5, and don't start at verse 22. Don't even start at verse 21. Start at verse 15 when you read Ephesians 5 about marriage. You need the entire context there. I can't wait until we go through Ephesians 5 in another couple or three years. It'll be great, okay? But um, I, I understand that this is a problem. We get into relationships primarily thinking that if we put something into it, we're owed something back. Um, You're the one that's being, apparently, it sounds to me like, I may be interpreting this wrong, it sounds to me like this is the person saying, the other person is expecting that I'm supposed to be doing something for them, that I owe them something. Um, Man, you're going to have to have a hard conversation Um, because this is really hard. The reality is, is that, Uh, you don't owe them anything. Um, Now, you should serve them. You should submit to them out of reverence for what Christ has done for you. You should serve them. You should submit to them. But you don't owe them anything. You owe Jesus everything. Mm -hmm. And and that's going to be a hard conversation to have. And you need to start maybe with If our if our marriage is going to be transactional, it's not sustainable. We need to figure that out right away and change the way we view our marriage. That may be an awful, terrible answer that didn't exactly answer the question, but that's that's where I would start with that. Yeah, it sounds like
2: the you know that uh, (coughs) I'm looking for you to give me my happiness. Yeah, you know this is it's stated in a different way, but that's basically what it is. How do we discuss and confront what we feel our owed or Confronting what our partner thinks we owe, um, it's two people looking to each other for things they can't give them they can i mean I can give you some happiness and I can you know fulfill you to some way, but i I can't be the primary thing for that because I am fallen and sinful and selfish, and so if you're looking to me to do that, you're looking the wrong way, and so that's kind of I feel like that's kind of what this is um I wrote down um, from camp this week, um, when forgiveness is given, um, you give it back more quickly and more naturally, yeah. and so that's kind of how I feel about this, is that there's some forgiveness that needs to happen here, um, and some things that need to be let go, right, and the, and the better you get at that, the better, um, the faster I'll give that to you, and the more naturally and the more real it becomes, and then these type of things start to diminish.
0: Um, many of us want to turn the gospel and our relationship with God into a series of propositions and principles. And I'm not denying that there aren't propositions and pr- principles in, in, in our relationship with God and in the gospel. But if, it's that, if that's all it is, you're missing out. Um, our experience with God is also experiential. It is emotional. Um, And and I have some things in my life rooted in my experience with God that may sound really uh, pie-in-the-sky ideological to you, but it's been true for me in my marriage. The times when I've looked at Jackie and I've had those thoughts, because we all have those thoughts, I've really been sucking it up and pouring into this marriage and serving her it's about time for some reciprocation. Doesn't she realize that? Doesn't she get that? When is she gonna start to help me, fix me, serve me, and pay me back for this? In those times when I, say, when I stop myself and I say, nope, my job is still to serve her. Even when I feel like her balance is up here of all the things that I've been giving her and I'm starving to death, and I go that extra mile and I serve her. You know what? That's when I am most blessed, believe it or not. In my marriage, that's when I've been most blessed. When I've, when I've looked and I've said, you know what? She really should do those dishes. I've done them the last four times. Isn't it about time that she did them? And then I get up and do them. And believe it or not that's the time that God will bless me. That's the time when she says, "Oh my gosh, I was getting ready to do sure I I was getting ready to do those. Thank you for doing that. That those are the times that I've been most blessed in our marriages when I've actually sucked it up and said, "Nope, I am called to serve her. I am called to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her."
2: And I think you're using sucked it up. <laughs> Such a great term. It's um, not the best term. As I admit a way that. as yeah. a way of saying, um, put my selfishness aside.
0: Yes, that's what I meant. Exactly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the point was taken. But yeah. Yes.
0: Thank you for clarifying. Yes, See, Stephanie. this is why you have to be here with us. <laughs> Anything, any others, Stephanie? That's it?
2: Okay. We can take live we're, questions. We're way over know, time. Oh, we I'm are? sorry
0: about that, but you guys have been so attentive and so. I hope this has been helpful. I, I don't know if there needs to be more conversations. We're up for that. Um, let me say this in closing. This is really important. Hear me on this, okay? Uh, as we've done this series the last three weeks, which it's been our great pleasure and privilege and we hope it's been a blessing and we hope it's helped you guys. I've had a number of couples, little bit older couples, not really old couples. I'm talking about little bit older couples who have been married for some time, who have some experience, who have some wisdom, who have walked in the gospel for a long time and who have wonderfully strong marriages in this congregation who have come and said, look, Frank, uh, if you have younger couples who just need a couple to walk with them, not necessarily counsel them or do that, kind, but just walk with them, befriend them. We want... We want you to have our names and our numbers and give those so. A couple of them are here tonight. Sean and Allison DeSerafino would love to walk with couples. Uh, Maybe some of you know Paul and Kelly Tyson. What an amazing married couple. They would love to walk with you in the midst of this. To the extent that Paul's in town, he's got a job now that he travels a lot, but what a wonderful marriage. I've, as I've gotten to know them, what a great marriage they have. Anne and Steve Wheeler. Many of you know Anne and Steve, right? Okay. Um, so Sharon, I'm gonna put you on the spot, but I think you and Andy have a great marriage and you would be willing to do that as well. Um, and, and so sorry to put you on the spot, but I know your hearts, I think, and I think you would love to be able to pour into younger people and younger couples and be able to do that. We have couples here who are willing to do that. Um, and, and it's hard it, it really is because of our schedules it's really hard to get Jackie and I together. 20 years ago we tried to do premarital counseling together. It just didn't work. Um, it just we couldn't get it scheduled. Um, but we'll do our best to, to to meet with you together but it just may take a long time to be able to do that but I'm open to meeting with people, and Jackie meets with people separately as well Mm -hmm. uh, when it works for her schedule, too. But we have resources in this church. We're a body. We're a community. uh, We love each other, and we want to help each other and support each other. Okay?
2: I was going to say something almost exactly like that, but um, in a room this size of people, um, we know that there's some of you are in trouble. We know that. And so... um, can't even tell you how many times we've sat down with people and they're in in trouble, you know. Um, And just taking the step to sit down with someone and talk to them and and maybe getting one thing every single time you, you sit with them that can help you, how much that can improve your marriage. Because you feel like you're taking actual steps and making progress, even if it's just a little bit at a time. Um, so we would really, really encourage you to come and talk to us, to find these people that Frank's talking about, um, because it can change your marriage completely. We sat with a couple people this weekend, and I feel like it made all the difference in their world, not because of us, but because right. they got to see a real marriage, a real person talking to them, and someone to say, you can do this. It's gonna, you're gonna, You can do this.
0: We watched one couple the first night, Friday night, Afterwards, we were like, did you see the one couple? Neither of them would make eye contact with us or with each other. Both of them sat. It was clear that neither one of them wanted to be there. And by the end of the retreat, they were sitting forward. They were fully engaged, making eye contact, and they were actually touching each other. Appropriately, but they were touching <laughs> each other. Um, and again, that's not us. But it's just, it was just the power of being able to connect and see things in different ways.
2: We always think we're alone you know we do and you're not
0: we're not yeah uh let me pray lord god um we love you and we just want to open our hearts to you and we just want to we just want to pray that this would be helpful that this would be a blessing and that you would be glorified in all of it that's our prayer we pray it in jesus name amen